Does God exist? I won't give you a proof tonight, but I hope I will give you some things to think about. Things that have led me from being an atheist to becoming a believer and a follower of Jesus. Perhaps the most widespread fundamental assumption in the intellectual West today is that there is no reality beyond what natural science discovers and that there is no authority or good higher than the freedom of the individual. Now, both science and individual freedom are good, but followers of Jesus, like me, have a different view. We believe that both the deepest reality and the highest moral meaning or good or authority are to be found in loving relationship. Why is nature regular? Why does it follow regular laws that even? Why can we understand them? And we're so used to these ideas today that we don't realize that they weren't actually that obvious to most people through most time. And the reason for that is that if you just live in the natural world, it doesn't seem to be always that regular. It seems to be capricious. It changes itself all the time. And so what you can show, I think quite, quite um, decisively historically, is that these ideas, these metaphysical underpinnings of science, uniformity, regularity, intelligibility, have deep theological roots. Their roots go back to a, a long history of theological reflection on a God who is faithful and sustains the world, therefore, in a regular way. But uh, just simply the idea that the universe could be expanding, not, not sort of expanding into something, but just that the, the space-time metric changes and that there could be a beginning of time is just incredible. I mean, if you go back to before uh, Einstein's work and you go to Newtonian world, you know, there's basically a coordinate system. There's X, Y, and Z, and T, right? And these are just fixed, and things happen in this grid, and you describe physical processes and events by putting them in this grid. And the idea that the universe was uh, changing is just completely ludicrous to many people. And then along comes Einstein, and now we realize that space-time not only can expand and contract, but through the work of Hubble, it actually is. The universe is expanding, and so if you play it back, there was a time when the universe was incredibly small and tiny. Um, that, to me, is just mind-boggling, and it actually adds to, yet again, adds to my sort of confidence that, uh, that the creation story has some merit. I, I certainly have colleagues who speak very much the way I used to speak, you know, like, how can you believe in something that you can't, uh, you know, prove mathematically or show in this way? And in fact, a friend of mine who's a mathematician used to say that to me. How can you believe in something that, you, you know, you can't prove? I only believe in things I can prove. And then one day he was reading a history book. And his, his friend, who happened to be a Christian, said, you know, why are you reading that history book? <laughs> you can't prove any of that. <laughs> and he realized there, there's a lot of truth that has happened in the past that we can't prove today like you can a mathematical. And furthermore, of course, all of our science and our math rest upon axioms and things that we take at faith. So people who think that they can't deal with faith are really just deceiving themselves. So what I'm fond of saying, and I'll say it again tonight, is I don't have the faith to be an atheist. To me, the universe does require an explanation. The philosopher's very ancient question of why is there something rather than nothing is still a valid question. And as many people, including physicist Paul Davies, have pointed out, um, the laws of physics themselves demand an explanation that stands somehow out of science. Whether that is a physical explanation or a spiritual explanation, nature is not self-explanatory. And ultimately, if I had to tell someone why I am a theist, it is because precisely I think that nature 
as we see it, requires an explanation. And the more we know of the world from science, the more it begs that explanation. I start by saying there is a God who created the universe, uh, and he's not an impersonal God. He has declared himself as a loving God who seeks a relationship with us and also gives us free will to choose him or not. And our purpose then is found in being in relationship with him. The order and structure of the natural, natural laws to me suggests a God who ordained and conceived those laws. The astonishing complexity of living things to me suggests an architect who cares about those things. The fact that there is something rather than nothing suggests the existence of a creator of that something. And, the fa and indeed, one of the joys I have in studying the natural sciences is that I learn a little bit about what God has done. And in the process, I think I come to understand a little bit of what he is like. He is much bigger, much grander, much more awesome, much more majestic than I would have previously imagined. See, science, it provides a set of tools that are useful for investigating phenomena in the natural world. But as powerful as it may be for dissecting planetary motion and battling cancer, it's not really intended for questions like why did life forms originate in the first place? And we're free to speculate opine and have our beliefs, but science is not equipped to answer questions like this. This doesn't itself mean, let me be clear here, that there is an answer somewhere else. It just means that we have to be faithful to what science is and that we can't extend the purview of science beyond what it is capable of addressing. The Lord led me to genetics, and I don't have time to get into that story, but it's a fascinating story, uh, how he led me to genetics. It was not what I had planned to do, um, but my goodness, I'm so happy I did. I can't imagine myself doing anything else, but I see it all as part of his plan to lead me to that and to help me to see um, identity in a whole different way. And when I think about my own identity, I think of Christ and um, how he created us. He created us in his image, so we had identity with him. And then we sinned, and his grace, we talk about grace, his grace, through his grace, he wanted to bring us back in relationship with him and to bring us back in identity with him. Remember that what we're doing uh, during these several weeks together is asking the question, does God exist? And can we detect the presence of this supreme being, some intelligent designer from science. And so we use this uh, photo right here as an example. And the point being that you not being a scientist will recognize design when you see it. Clearly there is design, but is there intelligent design? You will recognize intelligent design everywhere you see it. There is always purpose behind the design, and very often there is communication behind the design. So when we see all of nature, as we have been observing, we're asking the question, do we see design? And if we see design, then clearly we would say, that the science is pointing to an intelligent designer. Let's have a look at one simple system. While red blood cells are carried away at high velocity by a strong blood flow, leukocytes roll slowly on endothelial cells. P-selectins on endothelial cells interact with PSGL1, 
a glycoprotein on leukocyte microvilli. Leukocytes, pushed by the blood flow, adhere and roll on endothelial cells because existing interactions are broken, while new ones are formed. These interactions are possible because the extended extracellular domains of both proteins emerge from the extracellular matrix, which covers the surface of both cell types. The outer leaflet of the lipid bilayer is enriched in sphingolipids and phosphatidylcholine. Sphingolipid-rich rafts raised above the rest of the leaflet recruit specific membrane proteins. Rats' rigidity is caused by the tight packing of cholesterol molecules against the straight sphingolipids hydrocarbon chains. Outside the rats, kinks in unsaturated hydrocarbon chains and lower cholesterol concentration result in increased fluidity. At sites of inflammation, secreted chemokines bound to heparin sulfate proteoglycan on endothelial cells are presented to leukocyte 7 transmembrane receptors. The binding stimulates leukocytes and triggers an intracellular cascade of signaling reactions. The inner leaflet of the bilayer has a very different composition than that of the outer leaflet. While some proteins traverse the membrane, others are either anchored into the inner leaflet by covalently attached fatty acid chains or are recruited through non-covalent interactions with membrane proteins. The membrane-bound protein complexes are critical for the transmission of signals across the plasma membrane. Beneath the lipid bilayer, spectrin tetramers arranged into a hexagonal network are anchored by membrane proteins. This network forms the membrane skeleton that contributes to membrane stability and membrane protein distribution. The cytoskeleton is comprised of networks of filamentous proteins that are responsible for the spatial organization of cytosolic components. Inside microvilli, actin filaments form tight parallel bundles, which are stabilized by cross-linking proteins. While deeper in the cytosol, the actin network adopts a gel-like structure, stabilized by a variety of actin-binding proteins. Filaments, capped at their minus ends by a protein complex, grow away from the plasma membrane by the addition of actin monomers to their plus end. The actin network is a very dynamic structure with continuous directional polymerization and disassembly. Severing proteins induce kinks in the filament and lead to the formation of short fragments that rapidly depolymerize or give rise to new filaments. The cytoskeleton includes a network of microtubules created by the lateral association of protofilaments, formed by the polymerization of tubulin dimers. While the plus ends of some microtubules extend toward the plasma membrane, proteins stabilize the curved conformation of protofilaments from other microtubules, causing their rapid plus end depolymerization. Microtubules provide tracks along which membrane-bound vesicles travel to and from the plasma membrane. The directional movement of these cargo vesicles is due to a family of motor proteins linking vesicles and microtubules. Membrane-bound organelles like mitochondria are loosely trapped by the cytoskeleton. Mitochondria change shape continuously and their orientation is partly dictated by their interaction with microtubules. 
All the microtubules originate from the centrosome, a discrete fiber structure containing two orthogonal centrioles and located near the cell nucleus. Pores in the nuclear envelope allow the import of particles containing mRNA and proteins into the cytosol. Here, free ribosomes translate the mRNA molecules into proteins. Some of these proteins will reside in the cytosol. Others will associate with specialized cytosolic proteins and be imported into mitochondria or other organelles. The synthesis of cell-secreted and integral membrane proteins is initiated by free ribosomes, which then dock to protein translocators at the surface of the endoplasmic reticulum. Nascent proteins pass through an aqueous pore in the translocator. Cell-secreted proteins accumulate in the lumen of the endoplasmic reticulum while integral membrane proteins become embedded in the endoplasmic reticulum membrane. Proteins are transported from the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi apparatus by vesicles traveling along the microtubules. Protein glycosylation, initiated in the endoplasmic reticulum, is completed inside the lumen of the Golgi apparatus. Fully glycosylated proteins are transported from the Golgi apparatus to the plasma membrane. When a vesicle fuses with the plasma membrane, proteins contained in the vesicle's lumen are secreted and proteins embedded in the vesicle's membrane diffuse in the cell membrane. At sites of inflammation, chemokines secreted by endothelial cells bind to the extracellular domains of G-protein-coupled membrane receptors. This binding causes a conformational change in the cytosolic portion of the receptor and the consequent activation of a subunit of the G-protein. The activation of the G-protein subunit triggers a cascade of protein activation, which in turn leads to the activation and clustering of integrins inside lipid rafts. A dramatic conformational change occurs in the extracellular domain of the activated integrins. This now allows for their interaction with ICAM proteins displayed at the surface of the endothelial cells. These strong interactions immobilize the rolling leukocyte at the site of inflammation. Additional signaling events cause a profound reorganization of the cytoskeleton, resulting in the spreading of one edge of the leukocyte. The leading edge of the leukocyte inserts itself between endothelial cells, and the leukocyte migrates through the blood vessel wall into the inflamed tissue. Rolling, activation, adhesion, and transendothelial migration are the four steps of a process called leukocyte extravasation. It'd be a short quiz on that <clears throat> after a while before we leave. Uh, so you got all of that, right? <clears throat> the um, thing that amazes me about this video, first of all, is that we as humans, 
not me personally, but folks just like you and me have been able to see, understand, catalog, and explain what just happened. This is what happens when you cut your finger with a rusty nail or you get strep throat. This is what happens in the body to go deal with that invasion. Now, I don't know about you, but I can kind of imagine that this just happened by accident. Can you imagine that just happened by accident? And did you miss, by the way, once or at least once and perhaps twice, the uh, person speaking here mentioned the cascade of signals that are released throughout this process. So these little guys are getting messages that says, do your thing. And all of that's going on independent of you being even aware of it. It looks like design to me. Let's talk for a minute about mutations because that is, after all, the crux, the the core thought uh, behind the naturalist view, the materialist view of how things came to be. Uh, Somehow, and we still don't know how that happened, but somehow the first life began and then through a series of mutations, uh, random selection, survival of the fittest, these things grew, produced, etc., and evolved uh, to be the uh, complex uh, life organisms that we see today. Let's look at one thing. <clears throat> this is a hemoglobin um, cell. Uh, this is your red blood cell. And uh, this is the red blood cell that courses through all your bodies. This is a normal red blood cell. This is what it looks like. Know what that one is? Sickle cell. This is another normal red blood cell, but it's a mutation. Sickle cell, sickle cell anemia. And what's the problem with a sickle cell? Well, you see it. Uh, right here in this picture. They tend to glob up uh, as they pass through the veins. And so they create lots of problems and uh, can even result in uh, death um, as a result of this. So this is an example of a mutation. Now, let's just take a look at the kind of the interesting science behind the mutation. This is the uh, formation of that cell of hemoglobin. There are actually four proteins Uh, They're called alpha and beta proteins, two of each. And by the way, do you remember we talked about last week about the number of proteins that it takes uh, to make a a functioning fold? Well, this this cell is actually four proteins. The two alphas are 141 amino acids, and the two betas are 146. So if my math is right, that's 580-ish, 576 proteins to make one hemoglobin. That's a lot of lining up in the proper order to make one cell of hemoglobin. Well, nevertheless, the point being, this is the structure uh, of the uh, cell, and in the beta portion, so the, the 
represented by colors. The top is the alpha, the bottom is the beta, and uh, just represented here by colors. And so what we find is that there is one change in the beta protein. In the sixth position on the amino chain, amino acid chain of, what did I say, 246, in the sixth position, the code for that one amino acid was supposed to be GAG, and it's now GTG. It's a different chemical. It's a different acid. Uh, glutamic in the first case and valine in the second case. Aren't you impressed? <laughs> so there's the difference. That's a mutation. One change out of the 200 or one, 146 string amino acid, one change in position number six, and you go from a normally functioning hemoglobin cell to a sickle cell. Now, the fact is that most mutations are bad. Mutations rarely ever, maybe we shouldn't say never, but mutations rarely ever are good. We're going to take a look now at uh, DNA. Here is a cell, the basic unit of all living tissue. In most human cells, there is a structure called a nucleus. The nucleus contains the genome. In humans, the genome is split between 23 pairs of chromosomes. Each chromosome contains a long strand of DNA, tightly packaged around proteins called histones. Within the DNA are sections called genes. These genes contain the instructions for making proteins. When a gene is switched on, an enzyme called RNA polymerase attaches to the start of the gene. It moves along the DNA, making a strand of messenger RNA out of free bases in the nucleus. The DNA code determines the order in which the free bases are added to the messenger RNA. This process is called transcription. Before the messenger RNA can be used as a template for the production of proteins, it needs to be processed. This involves removing and adding sections of RNA. The messenger RNA then moves out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm. Protein factories in the cytoplasm, called ribosomes, bind to the messenger RNA. The ribosome reads the code in the messenger RNA to produce a chain made up of amino acids. There are 20 different types of amino acid. Transfer RNA molecules carry the amino acids to the ribosome. The messenger RNA is read three bases at a time. As each triplet is read, a transfer RNA delivers the corresponding amino acid. This is added to a growing chain of amino acids. Once the last amino acid has been added, the chain folds into a complex 3D shape to form the protein. Quick view 
like that again. You see the, this of course is a graphical representation, but you see the code along the bottom. And uh, that has described uh, for the transfer RNA exactly which uh, amino acid to bring with it into the factory. And so you can sort of imagine an um, Amazon warehouse with all these bins of amino acids and transfer says, oh, I need a UCA and runs to the box and grabs one and then runs over to the ribosome so that it, the ribosome can put it together with all the others of different codes in order to form that string. DNA. DNA is really a lot like, you can imagine it's a lot like a DVD. When you look at a DVD, what are you seeing? You're seeing a physical structure. But somehow, in that physical structure is buried lots and lots and lots of information. So, in this case, the... Um, Helix, the wind you see there, which is a sugar, uh, is the hard structure that carries the information. And those uh, multicolored uh, bars in the middle are the codes that are carried along in this strand of DNA. So much like DVD, you have the hard part that carries the data and the data itself. There are about 3 billion of these pairs of information in your genome, three billion that describe who you are. There's about a gigabyte and a half, one and a half gigabytes of data in every cell of your body. That's a lot of information in every cell of your body. 60 grams, if you could stretch out, pull out all the DNA and weigh it, scientists say that would weigh about 60 grams. Now, one gram of DNA is 455 exabytes of storage. And one exabyte is 100 billion gigabytes. That's how powerful the storage is in your cell. Ah, that could have happened by accident, huh? I'm sure it probably could have. If you were to stretch out all the DNA in every cell of your body, end to end, it would make the trip to the sun and back 100 times. How much is that? 93 million miles times 2 times 100. That's the length of every strand of DNA in your body. Here's an interesting thing. Everybody in here has 99.9% the same genome. Only 0.5% different. And yet, in that difference, there are 300 million differences between each of us. That's how finely tuned each individual is. And by the way, you have the same uh, genes as, as bananas. Half of them are the same as you find in a banana. So that's how complicated uh, your uh, system is. And the basis of all of this is information. How to build you. 
And of course, a lot of it is how to repair you and keep you working, but it's all revolves around information. Let's focus a minute on that. By the way, I'm not going to make The crucial question that will decide the debate about biological origins is precisely the question of the origin of information. If you don't have instructions, if you don't have information, you can't build anything in life. Everyone who works in biology knows that information is needed in order for a living cell to do what it does. On the other hand, there's this huge mystery surrounding information because we also know as humans that information doesn't come from nowhere, it has to come from somewhere. So you have this big question mark in the origins question in biology, where did all the information come from? Until 530 million years ago, the oceans of the early Earth were almost completely void of animal life. Then, within a geologically brief span of perhaps 10 million years, the waters were suddenly alive, teeming with a riot of complex animals, representing most of the major animal body plans that have ever existed on our planet. Known today as the Cambrian Explosion, this mysterious episode in life's history was familiar to Charles Darwin, who regarded it as a disturbing challenge to his theory of gradual and unguided evolution by natural selection. During the past century, the mystery of the Cambrian explosion has deepened as scientists have discovered the central role played by biological information in the history of life. The Cambrian explosion is not just an, an explosion or the abrupt appearance of many new forms of animal life. It's also an explosion or would have required a huge infusion or generation of new biological information. Biological form requires biological information. Scientists' understanding of biological information advanced dramatically when Cambridge University researchers James Watson and Francis Crick made a startling discovery. They found that the structure of the DNA molecule stores information in the form of a four-character digital code. Strings of precisely sequenced chemicals called nucleotide bases supply the assembly instructions, the information for building the crucial protein molecules that living cells need to survive. Crick later came to realize that the chemical constituents in DNA function like letters in a written language. 
or digital symbols in a section of computer code. Just as English letters convey a particular message depending on their arrangement, the sequences of chemical bases along the spine of the DNA molecule convey precise instructions for building proteins. The arrangement of these bases directs the arrangement of the 20 different kinds of amino acids that make up protein molecules. Proteins in turn perform a vast array of critical jobs inside cells, catalyzing reactions, processing genetic information, and forming the structural parts of molecular machines and other biological structures. Building new animals requires many new protein molecules and building new proteins requires new biological information. I, I used to ask my students a question when I was teaching. If you want to give your computer a new function, what do you have to give it? And they would know. They would say code or software or uh, instructions, uh, a program, all those are the correct answer. To generate a new function in a computer, you have to have code, you have to have instructions. The same thing turns out to be true in biology. This is the great discovery of the second half of 20th century biology, that information is running the show in biological systems. To build a new form of animal life requires cell types, requires proteins, and therefore requires genetic information. And that's the big question that the Cambrian explosion presents. If you want to think about how to build an animal, how would these animals get built, you have to have some explanation for the informational requirements of, of their construction. According to modern evolutionary theory, new proteins and new forms of animal life arise through random genetic mutations, sifted by natural selection. But in an alphabetic text or a section of computer code, random changes typically degrade meaning or functionality and ultimately generate gibberish. As we've come to appreciate the digital or typographic character of genetic information, we also, it raises some really interesting questions about the efficacy of that mutation-driven mechanism. Uh, and, and we know from computer code, for example, that if you start making random changes to a section of computer code, you're much more likely to degrade the information that's there already than you are to come up with a new operating system or program. This problem has long been recognized by computer scientists, mathematicians, and engineers including a group from MIT who convened a now-famous conference at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia in 1966. These scientists met to consider whether the random mutation natural selection mechanism could conceivably generate enough biological information to build a new animal or even a new protein in the time available to the evolutionary process. One of these scientists was MIT engineering professor Murray Eden. No currently existing formal language can tolerate random changes in the symbol sequences which express its sentences. Meaning is almost invariably destroyed. Murray Eden, MIT. Eden knew that random changes to alphabetic or digital characters inevitably degrade the information in any section of alphabetic text or digital code. And for a very good reason. Whether you're talking about digital code in a software program, or uh, a section of text in an English sentence or book, or uh, the, the genetic text in DNA. There are vastly more ways to arrange the relevant characters that convey the information in a way that will produce gibberish 
than there are to, that will produce function or meaning. Eden and his colleagues suspected that the genetic code faced a similar difficulty. When it came to producing new genetic information, at least enough to generate a new protein, the random mutation natural selection mechanism had to deal with what mathematicians call a combinatorial problem. In mathematics, the term combinatorial refers to the number of possible ways that a set of objects can be arranged or combined. In genetics, the combinatorial problem poses a severe challenge to the random mutation natural selection mechanism. To understand why, imagine a thief who would like to steal a beautiful new bike. All that stands between the thief and the bike is a lock with four dials, each marked with the numbers 0 to 9. But there is only one correct combination that will set the bike free. The reason a bike lock works is that there are vastly more ways of arranging those numeric characters that will keep the lock closed than there are that will open the lock. A thief without knowledge of the combination must guess the right combination from among 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 possibilities. That's 10,000 possible combinations, which usually would be more than enough to defeat a random search for the one right combination. Yet there is still a way the thief might succeed. If he has enough time to try enough combinations, he might eventually identify the right one by chance. For example, if trying each combination takes 10 seconds, then in 15 hours an especially diligent thief could try more than 5,000 combinations, or more than half of the total possible combinations. In that case, he would be more likely to succeed than to fail in opening the lock. But now imagine a much more complicated lock. Instead of four dials, this lock has ten dials. Instead of 10,000 possible combinations, this lock has 10 to the 10th power, or 10 billion possible combinations. With only one combination that will open the lock out of 10 billion, it's much more likely that the thief will fail, even if he devotes his entire life to the task. So what about relying on random mutations to search for a new DNA sequence capable of directing the construction of a new functional protein? Would such a random search for new genetic information be more likely to succeed or fail in the time available to the evolutionary process? In other words, is a random mutational search for a new gene or protein more like the search for the combination on the 4-dial lock or the 10-dial lock? The scientists at the Wistar conference were unable to definitively answer that question because at the time, no one could adequately quantify how hard the search problem was. So in the late 1960s, um, one could make these arguments based upon analogy to things we understood, written language, computer code, but we didn't have any experimental data to show whether those analogies actually suited the biological case. So no one could come up with the exact numbers to answer these questions back then. Molecular biologists at the time did know that the number of possible combinations corresponding to any given sequence of DNA is extremely large and grows exponentially with the length of the molecule in question. For example, corresponding to one short protein 150 amino acids long, there are 10 to the 195th power other amino acid arrangements of that length. That's an unimaginably large number. 
But scientists in the 1960s didn't know how many of those arrangements were actually functional. They didn't know, in effect, how many combinations would open the lock. That didn't stop evolutionary biologists from speculating. Many argued that there must be a high proportion of functional sequences among all possible sequences, so that a random search for a new functional sequence would have a high probability of success. The way they did that is to say, well, maybe biological sequences are not nearly as finicky, not nearly as picky about which characters are where as written languages or as computer code is. And so that's the track that they took that maybe proteins don't really care which amino acid is where and there's a great deal of variability and therefore you can have the same function performed by a huge number of protein chains and a huge number of genes. But recent experiments in molecular biology and protein science have replaced speculation with data. These experiments have established that DNA-based sequences capable of making functional proteins are in fact extremely rare among the vast number of possible sequences. Just how rare? After working at Cambridge University, molecular biologist Douglas Axe set out to answer that question using a technique called site-directed mutagenesis. His experiments enabled him to estimate that for every DNA sequence that generates a functional protein of just 150 amino acids in length, there are 10 to the 77th amino acid arrangements that will not fold into a stable three-dimensional protein structure capable of performing that biological function. One correct sequence for every 10 to the 77th power incorrect sequences. That's equivalent to searching for just one combination on a lock with 10 digits on each of 77 dials. To put this in perspective, keep in mind that there are only 10 to the 65th atoms in the entire Milky Way galaxy. Could random genetic mutations effectively search a space of possibilities that large in order to find even a single functional protein sequence? So given that you have this very uh, daunting probability, 1 in 10 to the 77th power, um, how could something that improbable happen? Well, as we know generally with improbable things, the way that they can happen is by having lots and lots of opportunities for them to happen. So for life, those opportunities take the form of individual living organisms in which a mutation could occur that could conceivably provide the solution. No matter how rare it is, if you get enough of these opportunities, it can become probable. So the question is, if the number is 1 in 10 to the 77th power, if that's the improbability that must be overcome, would the number of organisms that, is, that have existed on the planet since the beginning of life come close to matching that number? And it turns out that it doesn't come anywhere close. During the entire three and a half billion year history of life on Earth, it is estimated that only 10 to the 40th individual organisms have ever lived. Yet 10 to the 40th power represents only a small fraction of 10 to the 77th power. Only one 10 trillion trillion trillionth to be exact. In other words, for even a single functioning protein fold to arise, the mutation selection mechanism would have time to search just a tiny fraction of the total number of relevant sequences one ten trillion trillion trillionth of the total possibilities. 
It follows that it is overwhelmingly likely that a random mutational search would have failed to produce even one new functional protein fold in the entire history of life on Earth. Of course, the building of new animals would actually require the creation of many new proteins. For this and other reasons, a number of scientists are now questioning the creative power of the random mutation natural selection mechanism. Even evolutionary biologists writing in professional peer-reviewed biology journals are acknowledging difficulties with traditional evolutionary theory. Some are willing to admit we already live in a post-Darwinian era, while others are calling for new theories of evolution. Maya and Axe are part of a growing minority that has urged the consideration of another possibility. For Maya, the recognition of that other possibility grew out of his work as a PhD student in the philosophy of science at Cambridge University. During his studies, Maya ended up examining the scientific method used by Charles Darwin in his classic work On the Origin of Species. Darwin's method focused on trying to establish the causes of events in the remote past, in history. Darwin's historical scientific method is different from what many people ordinarily think of science. It's a much more forensic style of reasoning than your ordinary experimental bench science. Uh, you're reasoning from the clues that are left behind, from the, the evidence that we have before us, back to the probable or possible causes that might explain what produced life in the first place or what produced animal life or what produced those clues that lie before us. And I ended up doing my dissertation uh, in Cambridge on the, the historical scientific method. And one of the things I, I discovered in the process of my research was that, that there was this distinctive method. It has a name. And that name is the method of multiple competing hypotheses or the method of inferring to the best explanation. But how do scientists studying biological history determine which explanation is actually best? Meyer found an answer again in the work of Darwin and his contemporary, the great geologist Charles Lyell, who argued that in explaining the past, the present is the key. Lyell insisted that we should seek explanations based on our knowledge of presently acting causes, or causes now in operation. All this led Maya to ask a critical question. What is the cause now in operation for the production of digital information? Because the crucial question in the origin of animal life and the origin of life itself is where did the information come from? Information stored digitally in the DNA molecule, where did that information come from that is necessary to build these new forms of life? And I realized that the answer to that question is intelligence. The cause now in operation, the cause of which we know from our uniform and repeated experience, another key uh, idea from Lyell, uh, that is capable of producing information is intelligence. Whether we're looking at a hieroglyphic inscription, or a paragraph in a book, or a section of computer code, or even information embedded in a radio signal, whenever we see information, especially when we find information in a digital or typographic form, and we trace it back to its ultimate source, we always come to a mind, not a material process. So the discovery that information is running the show in life, the discovery that there are these huge infusions of information in the history of life, such as the one that occurs in the Cambrian explosion, suggests that a designing intelligence has played a role 
in the history of life. And it also suggested to me that it was possible to formulate a scientific case for intelligent design that is a case for intelligent design based on the same scientific method of reasoning that Charles Darwin had used in The Origin of Species. And so if you want to say intelligent design isn't science, uh, you would have to say that the Darwinian argument in The Origin of Species is also not science, but no one really wants to say that. He's not using an unscientific method, he's just using a different method of scientific reasoning, an historical method of scientific reasoning, and I use that exact same method in formulating the... Uh, we'll stop there for the sake of time. Uh, one more thing before we go, one more thing to uh, impress you about the DNA in your body. I uh, remember the slide earlier that said that all of the DNA in your body would represent about 455 exabytes of storage and that it weighs about 60 grams. That's how much your DNA weighs. Not very much, 60 grams. Now, here's a comparison. Are you familiar with the little micro SD cards? You put them in your phone, some, some of the Android phones, you know, you get a little tiny card, okay. Well, it's amazing, really, what we've been able to do with those little cards. I might be mistaken, but I think I'm correct in, that, in saying that the highest capacity micro SD card we have today is 400 gigabytes. Now, that's an amazing amount of data compressed into that tiny little card. That little card weighs a half a gram. So it would take 120 of those to weigh 60 grams. But to give you the same amount of storage as you have in your body, it would take 100 million of those little SD cards to provide the same amount of data storage that you have in all the DNA in your body. Just an accident, I'm sure, just a mutation. Okay, we're off next Sunday for Life Group, and then two Sundays more after that. The, the first of those two Sundays will be a quick high-level overview of all that we've done, and the last Sunday will be something along the lines of the Bible knew it first.